Okay, how you doing, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the John Riley Project. It's episode number 310. This is a podcast all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We like to cover a lot of news here in my San Diego area. We're going to get into a lot of different things here. We're going to talk about the Sandag mileage tax that is being discussed and proposed for the mass infrastructure project that is you know, part of Sandag's vision for San Diego. We're going to break that down. We're going to talk a little bit about Mira Mesa and the lawsuits that they're, you know, the city of San Diego is getting hit with these lawsuits by climate activists that want to disrupt or stop a lot of the plans that the city of San Diego has to reimagine um, how Mira Mesa is going to be set up. And, you know, if time permits, we might get into a little bit about Social Security. That's been in the news for the past few weeks, and I've got my own thoughts and comments on it. So, we welcome you to join us here on the live stream. If you're watching on live, if you're watching the live stream on Facebook or YouTube, you can get involved. You know, we'll take your comments and questions. Just type them in in the live chat. I'll see them up here on my screen, and we'll get you involved in the podcast because this, after all, is a community forum, and that's part of the fun we do with this. So. That's what's going on. So how you been lately? Um, you know, I've been kind of <laughs> I haven't done a podcast episode in a while. I like last week I didn't do one. And the week before that, I just shared a podcast interview that I had done with Ed Franklin, who is another great podcast here in San Diego, the Ed Franklin No Limits podcast, which I encourage you to check out. Um, trying to still get back into this rhythm. Wednesdays around lunchtime is a really good time to do this. And that's sort of my plan here. Um, but just a couple of uh, personal updates in case you're interested. Um, I was just recently a guest on another podcast called The Independent, and it's hosted by Fernando Garcia. Um, This is a brand new podcast. I think he's going to begin releasing his episodes in the next few weeks. I think I was episode number three. Um, Fernando Garcia was actually a guest here on the John Riley Project. He ran for Congress, you know, for the House of Representatives as an independent candidate. So he's a he's a you know big proponent of kind of trying to break down a lot of the nonsense between the political parties and the tribalism and just try to focus on the issues. And so we had a great conversation. So I'm looking forward to that coming out. That should be released in the next few weeks. Um and I've been, you know, part of the reason I didn't do a podcast last week, I've been spent so busy. Working, I I host two podcasts, this one, you know, the John Riley Project, and then I co-host a podcast with Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, which is all sports, which is so much fun. And we've got so much going on with that particular project, talking Padres and Chargers and the NFL and Aztec basketball and and all kinds of things, not just local, but nationwide, in some cases, worldwide sports. Um, so if you're interested in, in any of the sports content, I invite you to go check that out. Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, wherever you get your podcasts, he's got a YouTube channel and we just have a great time discussing stuff. You know, Hacksaw, of course, is the legendary sports talk show host here in San Diego. He was on the air for almost 30 years here in San Diego. And he's also the former play-by-play man for the San Diego Chargers and the Seattle Seahawks and USC Trojan football and Arizona State football and basketball and the Phoenix Giants and the PCL and all kinds of minor league hockey um, up and down the Northeast Corridor. So, wow. Um, 
at any rate, uh, the, the last thing, just on a personal note before we kind of really dig into these topics, man, it's freaking cold outside, you know? And I guess we're supposed to be getting hit with some snow. I think there's been some hail or they got all these new names for hail, like small hail and big chunk hail. I can't remember what the last new name I'm learning about all this, these wintry conditions as a native Californian. I'm not really used to it. Um, but, you know, there apparently there's going to be a lot of snow throughout the state of California, and, you know, not, not just in the Sierras, but in the central valleys, maybe even in some of the coastal communities. And there's been some conversation online about the time that it snowed in San Francisco in 1976. And I'm not sure if you remember this, but it really did snow in the city of San Francisco. And, you know, at the time in 1976, I was living along the San Francisco Peninsula, you know, and they've got some hills there between the San Francisco Bay and the Pacific Ocean. And those hills got snow and it got to the point where they closed down roads. Kids weren't going to school. It was like a snow day in the Bay Area. It was crazy. And so I'm wondering if that's what we're going to happen. That's what's going to happen today in parts of California. But I just remember for me, I was like, I think I was 11 years old when that happened. And that was just such a thrill, you know, that we were getting snow in the area. And I think we're going to be getting a lot of it, maybe not as far as San Diego, but keep your eye on the weather. It's going to be kind of an interesting ride here. Um, oh, yeah. And then one final comment before we get into the primary topics for today. And I just really want to take a moment to talk about Mary Shepherdson. Now, Mary Shepherdson recently passed away, and Mary Shepherdson has meant so much to my hometown of Poway, California. Um, Mary Shepherdson is a longtime Poway resident. I think she's lived here pretty much her whole life. And prior to that, her family lived here in Poway in the early parts of the 20th century, where some of, not the original settlers, but were definitely a big part of Poway's history. And she has, not only was she on the city council when the city was first incorporated in 1980, she became mayor of the city of Poway in the 1980s, um, Poway's first uh, female mayor. But she's also been just such a great community activist in terms of preserving Poway's history. And she served, you know, forever on the Poway Historical Society's board and really took a lot of pride in maintaining our local historical museum in the city of Poway. She has written so many articles in our local newspaper recounting a lot of Poway's history. And she has just been just this you know, this this beautiful diamond in the city of Poway um, and the things that she did for her community. I mean, she legitimately loved the city of Poway and she recently passed away a couple of weeks ago. And I just wanted to take a moment to celebrate Mary Shepherdson because she's worthy of this celebration and all the wonderful things that she and her family have done for the city of Poway. So Mary Shepherdson, rest in peace. Okay, let's uh, let's dig in, and I want to talk a bit about the Sandag mileage tax that's being proposed that could potentially 
change. <laughs> All right, we already got one comment here from someone. Hell no to the mileage tax. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna break all this down. So um, the here's the deal. Um, there is a big infrastructure plan for San Diego. You know, the San Diego Association of Governments, also called SANDAG, has this grand vision of reimagining the way transportation is done in San Diego. And they want to see this to be more of a, how should I say, like a lot of other major urban cities in the United States, where there's going to be a lot more mass transit, where there's going to be a lot more trolley and light rail, potentially even subways in San Diego. Um, This is a major reimagination of transportation. And it's all being done within the context of how we're going through this housing crisis. There's a lot more housing development. Likely areas of our city are going to become more and more dense. Suburban sections of San Diego and San Diego County may become more urban. Rural areas of San Diego County may become more suburban. And as there's more density of housing, there's going to be a need for more mass transit. And this is also being um, proposed by a lot of climate change activists that want to see a cleaner San Diego and, and see less cars on the road, emitting fossil fuels and carbon emissions, and they want to see a a more beautiful, more clean transportation system for San Diego. And that's sort of the vision of all this. And as part of this, in order to fund it, they've got a number of ideas on the board. You know, I think there's a talk of increasing our sales tax. There is talk of other tax sources. And one other one happens to be this idea of a mileage tax. So essentially, as an, as an automobile driver, you would be charged so many cents per mile. They haven't come up with what the, the, the actual rate is going to be, but we would pay potentially a certain amount of cents per mile as we drive in on the roads. And this would be used to not only fund the roads – and fund the freeways, but it also would generate a lot more additional revenue that could fund the trolley and all these trolley lines and the infrastructure for the trolley lines. You know, by the way, have you seen some of the infrastructure of the trolley line going up the coast from Mission Valley all the way up to UC San Diego and into the UTC area? I mean, they've got these huge you know, overpasses, concrete pillars and concrete platforms where the where the trolley is going. So it's a huge infrastructure project and they're trying to find ways to fund all of this. And so the the gas tax mm-hmm. is part of it. And this proposed mileage tax is another big part of how they're planning to go about this plan. So. What do you think of this? I mean, we've already got one person that came on board here and expressed that they weren't happy about it. Here, we'll get this guy involved here. This is San Diego Scuba Mike. He says, hell no to the mileage tax. I mean, how do you feel about this? There's a lot of people that are really freaking out about this mileage tax um, for a lot of different reasons. I think you've got some people that are really concerned about privacy. They go, what do you mean? A mileage tax? Are you going to put like a GPS on my car and now you're going to know where I drive? Are you going to be able to violate my privacy because you're going to be able to track where I'm going and how I'm going? 
people are concerned about that. There are other people that are concerned with, oh, my God, like another tax. We're already paying a gas tax. We're already paying sales tax to fund the roads. We're paying property tax to fund the roads. We're paying income tax to fund the freeways and the roads. And now you want to add a mileage tax on top of all this? Wait a minute. There's other people that object to it because they don't like the whole mass transit idea. Maybe because they just don't share that vision for the future or maybe because they're sort of, you know, curmudgeons and just don't want change at all. Um, And then there's other people that just generally, you know, because a mileage tax is sort of like this different paradigm of a tax, you know, they're skeptical, concerned and, you know, change is hard. So there's just been a lot of conversation, objections to it, and how would it work? And apparently Sandag had it on, uh, put it on the board. I've heard they've taken it off the board, but I'd bet you they really haven't. This is part of a vision that local government, state government have on how to fund the roads. So how do you feel about it? Should we tax people based on how, uh, um, how many miles they drive? Now, speaking for myself, Generally speaking, sort of conceptually, I don't necessarily have an argument against the mileage tax, you know, in very broad terms, because I always think that you should pay for what you use. So, you know, if 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 you use the roads, you should pay for the roads and you should pay for the roads, you know, kind of in proportion to how much you use the roads. To me, that makes sense, you know, because um, right now there are a lot of people that don't have cars, but yet they're paying income taxes to fund roads. Um, there are, you know, with the gas tax is not a perfect science either. No, normally you'd think, well, a gas tax, people pay a, ga- uh, a percentage of their fuel and that goes to fund the roads. And that sort of sounds OK, but, you know, I'm an electric vehicle driver. We have two EVs. We don't pay gas tax, you know, so how is it fair that EV drivers get to drive on the roads and not have to pay the gas tax? Well, EV drivers actually do pay for the roads because not only are we paying our regular registration fee with the state of California, but there is an additional layer line item that we pay in addition to fund the roads. Now, it's a flat fee, not a variable fee. So if you drive a lot, you're probably not paying enough. And if you drive very little, you're probably paying too much if you're an EV driver. And then consider what it would be like for gasoline or diesel fuel cars and trucks. You know, if you have a car that gets excellent mileage, you know, good on you, but you're probably using a lot less gas and therefore paying a much lower tax rate to use the the roads, as opposed to someone that drives a big gas guzzler or is driving an 18-wheeler who's not as efficient, they're probably paying disproportionately more for gas. So the gas tax is, is, you know, conceptually sort of okay, but there's a lot of imperfections in it. Um, So what's what's the right way to go about this? Now, one of my concerns about this is that this, this mileage tax that's being proposed by Sandag isn't a replacement for all the other taxes that we use to fund roads and infrastructure and everything else. It's in addition. I mean, because think about it. How are we currently funding roads today? Well, in your local city, like here in my own city of Poway, when they build the roads or resurface the roads, which they do periodically to maintain them, where does that money come from? Well, 
mostly the city of Poway, I know that about, if I recall, about 80% of its revenue comes from property taxes and from sales taxes. Now, you know, granted, a lot of that's funneled through the county and then only a fraction of that comes back to the city. But in the end, those are the two primary sources that fund that. So people are already paying sales tax and property tax to fund roads in their local city. Um, back in 2000 and I don't know, it was, was it 2004? It was even earlier. Yeah, it was, it was earlier that Sandag had implemented what they called the transnet tax, which was an additional half cent sales tax on top of the existing sales tax that was used to fund roads and freeways. And they actually had a plan to use that money to expand the freeways. Um, so here, this is from the uh, Keep San Diego Moving website. And it said that, um, yeah, in 1987, San Diego County residents approved the 20-year Transnet program, a half-cent sales tax to fund a variety of transportation projects throughout San Diego County. This program became operative in 1988 and expired in 2008. But in November of 2004, voters approved an extension of the transnet tax all the way to 2048. So that's been approved. So we're still paying that half cent tax on top of our existing sales tax to fund roads. Now, specifically, it's, it's used funds are expected to be generated among highway transit local road projects to reduce traffic congestion in San Diego County. Okay. Um, Sandag administers the funds generated by Transnet. And let me see if I get to the point here where they said, oh, yeah. So um, the the Transnet uh, improvement for the region, these major construction infrastructure projects include Interstates 5, 15, and 805, State Routes 52 and 76, the Mid-Coast Corridor Transit Project, Trolley, Bus Transit, the rapid transit between San Diego State and downtown San Diego, the rapid bus line between San Diego State and, excuse me, and, and, San, and downtown San Diego, the South Bay um, BRT from the Otay Port of Entry to downtown, the Super Loop, circulator transit in the University City area, et cetera, et cetera. So this sales tax increase of a half cent was meant to not only fund the freeways, which included widening the freeways, which included, I think, that HOV lane down the middle of the 15 freeway. And there were promises to widen the 76, even widen the 67 freeway. And they were also going to use this money, yeah, for mass transit, for trolleys, for buses, and they had a bunch of other ideas for it. Well, we've been paying that since 1987, or actually 88. And we're going to continue paying that until 2048. <laughs> wow, that's a long time in the future. I hope I'm alive in, 20, in 2048. But this is this mileage tax would be in addition to that. It's in addition to the property taxes and sales taxes that we've used to fund local roads. It would be in addition to the sales tax increase that Sandag implemented to fund the roads and the mass transit infrastructure. But, you know, by the way, we're also paying a gas tax. I mean, it's not like this mileage tax is going to replace the gas tax. The state still charges for a gas tax. 
And I and again, that money is probably used for state freeways, I'm assuming. But then Sandag sales tax was also supposed to fund the local freeways in San Diego County. So this gets tricky. And then, oh, by the way, there's a federal gas tax, which funds the federal highways, which I assume would be the interstate highways, right? Like Interstate 5 and 805 and 15. So it's like we're paying all of these layers of taxes, you know, especially if you're driving a gas-powered car. And it's coming from all of these sources. And you're like, well, where does this end? Where does this end? And then it makes you wonder, like, well, how are they spending that money? You know, is it kind of like a shell game? Is Are they spending money on the money that they're allocating so-called for the gas tax? Does that really all exclusively fund the roads? Or does the gas tax just kind of go into the general fund in Sacramento or the general fund in Washington, D.C., where it gets mixed up with all the other revenue streams and then it kind of funds all kinds of different things? You know, is our gas tax funding education? <laughs> is our gas tax funding health care? You know, are they intermingled? Is this money fungible? How does that work? And as they keep adding additional layers of taxes to fund transportation like this proposed mileage tax. And then they don't take away the gas tax. Well, then that kind of relieves the burden on that gas tax to fund a lot of transportation initiatives and thus frees up that money to fund things other than roads. So it becomes kind of a shell game. We see that criticism here in my local city of Poway where the city of Poway is collecting money because they can't do tax increases, you know, without going to the voters for approval. But they can increase the sewer and water rates. And allegedly, they're taking money from the sewer and water rates and they're moving it over to pay for other city government operations, which some people get angry about. Is that what's is that what's going to happen with this mileage tax increase? I don't know. And then let's think this through. How are they going to do it? How would they actually implement a mileage tax? Now, some people are fearful. They're like, what, are you going to put a GPS in my car and you're going to track where I drive? You know, some insurance companies are doing that already because they can offer a discount on your insurance. Hmm, That makes sense. It's optional. And, you know, the insurance company is just going to be checking like how you drive, your, your speed, you know, your aggressiveness or passiveness as a driver. And score you. To me, that makes sense. And especially if it's optional, you can qualify for a discount. Some might say, well, gosh, you know, Google is tracking you where you're driving, what you're doing. Yeah, they are. But Google doesn't threaten to put you in jail or to seize your vehicle if you don't pay. (laughs) Um, The government would if they had um, that tracking device. And besides, you know, the government's supposed to protect privacy, not violate it. So I think the idea of a GPS in a car, that's, that's, a, that's a dangerous precedent. It o- opens up the opportunity where now you've got the wolf sticking its nose in the hen house. I mean, we're already concerned about government, you know, spying on our emails, on our voice calls. I mean, there was a big scandal about that with the NSA. 
you know, which George Bush started with Patriot Act, but then which President Obama expanded the surveillance of innocent Americans with the national, was it NSA? Is it National Security Administration? Can't remember what it stands for. But Obama expanded it. And then um, Eric Snowden caught him on it and called him out. And then Obama had to reduce the scope and power of the NSA. So is this going to be another step in that direction of a kind of a Orwellian big brother spying on us where we're going and then actually having the coercive power to penalize us if we don't comply or if we behave in a way that they don't like? That's a fair objection. But what, what, what else could they do? Well, one other way you could do it, I mean, you know, in a dream scenario, you know, people would just pay for the roads they use, right? So rather than doing a mileage tax, you know, they, you know, maybe they were toll roads. But, you know, that sounds kind of crazy, right? Would there would be a toll booth like every mile? I mean, I don't think anyone would ever propose that. I mean, especially if you pay a toll to drive on the 15 freeway, there's a lot of people that have um, that device in their car that tracks them when they get on the road and lets and, and then decrements their account so many dollars for using that HOV lane if they're driving solo. Supposedly, it doesn't track where you're driving. It just tracks when you're on that HOV lane between Escondido and the 15-163 split. So imagine, I mean, they could potentially do that. Um, so if the tracking device just tracked when you were passing through essentially a checkpoint so they could charge you, that could work. But again, that's the, the wolf's nose is in the hen house. That sets the stage for they could, they could say, oh, you were driving here when you should have been driving there. You know, so that gets into the privacy space. That gets a little bit dangerous. What about checking an odometer? That's not a bad idea. I mean, we got to take our cars in to be checked for, especially if you drive a gas power car, you have to get a smog check. They could check an odometer rating and that could be a way they could track your mileage. But then is that right? Is that fair? Because first of all, people manipulate their odometers all the time. And I know that's against the law. The other part of it is that, you know, people drive outside of San Diego County. They could be on a cross-country trip racking up the miles on their odometer. But then Sandag in, in this county of San Diego wants to charge you per mile, even though hypothetically 80% of your miles are outside the county. Would that be fair? Would that be right? I don't know. This is tricky. It's not an easy thing to do. If you think about how they would do it, even if you accepted the idea of a mileage tax, the idea of how they would do it is tricky. Now, one idea that I heard that I thought was really clever in, in terms of it, it avoided any of the privacy issues because there wouldn't be a GPS device in your car or any kind of a device like they use on the HOV lane or the, the devices they use in the Bay Area when you cross the bridge, you know, they they have like, you know, that electronic device that'll decrement your account. So we could set the privacy stuff aside. We could also potentially set aside the objection of, you know, manipulation of the odometer. The third one I thought was a pretty interesting idea was to apply the fee or a tax, however you want to do it, onto tires. So the more you drove, 
the more you paid. So I don't know. I'm just going to make up some numbers. If you got a car that was ra- a tire that was rated for sixty thousand miles, then that would sort of be built in. Sixty thousand miles of driving would sort of be built into the price of that tire. Not a bad idea. And if you buy a tire that only has like a like a softer tire that only has a twenty five thirty thousand mile lifetime, then then you pay differently. And so that could scale, but it still doesn't solve the problem of people that maybe drive 80% of their miles outside of San Diego County when Sandag here in the San Diego County jurisdiction wants to tax every mile you drive, even the miles outside of San Diego. That doesn't seem right either. So this still gets really tricky, really tricky. So I don't know, how are they going to do it? What do you think? Now, There's another part of this as well that's, I think, worthy of discussion. Now, they're going to use this money not just to fund the roads, but they want to fund all this other stuff. So they want to fund trolleys and bus lines and maybe even subways. That's part of Sandag's plan. But who should pay for that? Now, like I told you, I think people should pay for what they use. That's why I'm kind of conceptually open to an idea of a mileage tax, if it's done the right way. So shouldn't the people that use the trolley pay for the trolley? Or should the people that drive cars that don't use the trolley pay for the trolley? Yeah, I don't think that really is fair. What do you think? Um, and, and also, I mean, consider... You know, consider like a retired grandma in Rancho Bernardo. And they drive their car, but they only drive it, you know, to the grocery store, go to church on Sundays, that kind of thing. Um, And, you know, the mass transit is terrible around Rancho Bernardo. Just awful. So should that retired grandma who doesn't drive very much be paying extra sales tax and extra income tax provided she has she's getting income to fund a trolley line along the coast so kids that are students at UCSD can go on the trolley at a discount meanwhile these kids might be from rich families does that make sense I think that's a hard sell then the other angle to this that makes it all very tricky is this idea of the last mile because the trolley, like if you go like into New York City or if you go to Tokyo, I mean, that subway system and the train system, well, subways in New York and Tokyo, it's both trains and subways. That mass transit is ubiquitous. I mean, it's everywhere in the city. And so if you get on or off the train, it's you're usually pretty close to your destination. You might have to walk 10 minutes and then you're going to be there, you know, with some rare exceptions. But here in San Diego, there's there's very little of that infrastructure. I mean, well, first of all, the mass transit, the trolley doesn't even go up the 15 corridor at all. It goes, you know, roughly from downtown to the border, downtown to Mission Valley and Mission Valley out to like Santee. And then it's also going from Mission Valley up to UCSD and it wraps around to UTC. But, you know, and granted, I know they want to expand it, but still, 
I mean, you would have to travel one, two, three miles just to get to where the trolley station is. I mean, here, I live in Poway. I'd probably have to drive. I mean, what's the distance from my house in Poway to Snapdragon Stadium at the, at the site of the former Qualcomm Stadium? That's probably the closest trolley line station. Or you might say, well, you know, maybe you need to get on a bus to take the bus down the 15 to get to the trolley, and then you transfer to get on the trolley. Like, okay. But where is that bus transit hub? Well, there's one in Rancho Bernardo. There's another one, Ted Williams Parkway and the 15. Both of those are between two and five miles from my house. So do they expect people to walk that distance? Do they expect people to bike it, to skateboard it? And oh my God, what if you're a person, you're carrying a kid and a stroller and you got bags of groceries? I mean, how does that work? How does that work? I mean, I get the idea of mass transit and and more efficient transportation and, and helping solve the climate problem. But really, is that workable today? Now, granted, I know it's going to take time. You've got to work your way. You can't go from zero to 100 miles an hour in an instant. You're going to have – it's a slow progression. But San Diego also has a lot of tricky parts to this because we have so many mesas and canyons. And it's most likely that the the mass transit, particularly if it's rail, it's going to be more or less in the canyons rather than the mesas. So now people are going to be walking up and down hills, carrying groceries, kid and stroller. I mean – does that work? Does it? I, I, I mean, to me, it's concerning. So in my podcast I had with Fernando Garcia last week, which hopefully will be coming out soon, Fernando Garcia, The Independent, that's the name of his podcast, which I big applause for Fernando on what he's doing with that. Um, trying to break down this whole Republican versus Democrat tribal mentality, collective mentality, and just really focusing on issues without – all the party nonsense. Good on him. But in our conversation, we did talk about the last mile and how realistic, how, how can people get to and fro on mass transit when we've got, it's, and it's really not just the last mile. It might be the last six miles, <laughs> the last 15 miles. How are they going to do that? Now, you may have heard me say this before, and I've said it numerous times in the past. I think trains like it's like I it's like this romantic vision of trains that some people have. This mass transit romance. Um, trains, you know, are like 19th, 20th century technology. And we're in the 21st century. I mean, things are very different. Are we still gonna be using trains? 50 years from now, is that really the most efficient way for us to get around? And are we going to be needing to get around as much as we do now? I mean, with people working from home, telecommuting, which I think is great. Are people going to need to travel as much, especially for their day-to-day to commute? I think that's in question right now. But to take it a step further... When they were creating all of these ideas around mass transit, about trolleys, about subways, 
they didn't really have it in their minds about what the future technology could be. You know, and I can tell you, I, I drive an electric vehicle. I love our EVs. We have two EVs. They're powered by solar. Love it. Love, love, love it for a lot of reasons. Saving money, beating the system in a lot of different ways. They're fun to drive. And oh, by the way, they're good for the climate. Um, but we can see where this technology is going. You know, like I drive... Um, a Hyundai Kona. That's my car. And I, I have sensors in this car. And I can literally take my hand off the steering wheel on the freeway and it'll stay in its lane and it'll turn because the sensors can check, you know, where the lane markers are. And it works really well, you know, for a limited amount of time. Then my car starts beeping at me. Put your hands back on the steering wheel. But, you know, you see what the Teslas are doing in terms of self-driving and that's still in its infancy, but it keeps getting better. The technology in these cars keeps getting better. It's not going to be too long to where this self-driving concept really works. Then what? Now imagine a situation where you don't need a train or a subway to get around. In fact, you don't even need to use your existing gas-powered car. You just hail a ride. You contact the equivalent of an Uber or Lyft, and an EV shows up, a driverless EV, you get in it, and it takes you exactly where you want to go. No need to build all this expensive infrastructure, concrete overpasses and pillars, and dig tunnels that cost insane money that are massively disruptive. You just use the existing infrastructure, the roads. There they are. And because these are computer controlled, they can go one to one. You know, we can go from our, our doorstep to our actual destination, our place of work, our place of play, our shopping destination. We can go right to that front entrance. And by the way, since they're computer controlled, these cars can link up and travel in a swarm on the freeway at high speeds, much more efficiently than gas cars do with human drivers. And they'll be able to drive more safely because you don't have drunk drivers. You don't have people putting on their makeup or looking at their phone while they're driving their car or trying to manage their children in the back seat of the minivan. <laughs> I was one of those parents. Um, so the, the vision, if you look in the crystal ball, you could see a vision that looks very different than what exists today. So it's, I like to think of the Wayne Gretzky concept. It's don't skate to where the puck is, skate to where the puck is going. This technology is going in a different direction. And that's what I worry about this whole Sandag vision is that they're going to spend crazy money they're going to just radically redo the way our transportation is set up in San Diego, and it may not meet the needs of the individuals and what they want. I mean, because California is the land of the car. California is this amazing place of independence where we can drive wherever we want to go. We, you know, People sell California and San Diego specifically on the idea that you can go surfing in the morning then get in your car, drive two hours, and then go snowboarding in the afternoon. How in the hell are you going to do that with mass transit? It's impossible. So 
but it can be done if you can look into the future and see what self-driving electric vehicles can do. And by the way, those don't emit carbon. So you've got a clean environmental solution for this, especially if they're powered by solar. But still, we keep reverting back to this idea of trains. And now mileage taxes on cars to pay for the trains for other people. This is crazy. So, you know, put me down in the the, um, column of I'm open to the idea of a mileage tax if it's used exclusively to fund the roads. So the people that use it pay for it and they pay for it in proportion to how they use it. That makes sense. We've got to work out actually how they do it. But that's the right idea, especially because the gas tax is an imperfect model. But as far as mass transit and everything is concerned, I, I'm kind of of the opinion, you know, if you want to build it, go for it. But just make the people that use it pay for it. You know, don't be taxing everybody. Just add it into what people pay to use the system. You know, if, it, if it's normally a dollar a ride or two dollars a ride, then make it four dollars a ride. But you know what? The challenge is, is that the visionaries behind mass transit, their ultimate goal is to make it, you know, quote unquote, free. They want to make it so you could just hop on, hop off and not have to pay, at least not have to pay transactionally to use it. You would just pay in taxes. And if they do, if they can do that, then what they end up doing is taxing people that don't use it to pay for people that do use it and to use tax sources that are in that are not linked to the actual infrastructure itself so they can end up sort of distorting it and and making the other guy pay so they can go for free and that yet those are the same people that demand that everyone pay their fair share is that fair share really is it i don't know okay Let's move along. Okay, so a couple other comments just to get a little bit of update on the podcast. So, um, you know, I, I tend to go in these spurts. I'll, I'll have a bunch of episodes and then I'll decide I want to come up with some new ideas of things to talk about. And then sometimes I just kind of think about, well, what do I need to talk about? And at some point, local news is sort of repetitive, right, to a degree, but then I realized, well, there is still a lot to talk about. Heck, we just talked for 40 minutes on the Sandag tax. Holy crap. That's a lot. And we haven't even gotten into this Mira Mesa lawsuit, which I want to talk about. And I do want to share a few comments about Social Security. There's still so much to talk about. I think also I'm going to start blending in a little bit of national issues but while still keeping this primarily a San Diego-based podcast. Because um, I think that's important that we cover San Diego County headlines and comments. And we welcome your thoughts and comments on this. But, yeah, so we'll we'll take this podcast. It'll end up being over an hour. I don't expect everyone to watch a whole hour's worth of this. So I usually will break this up into chunks. And I share YouTube videos on that. And now I'm starting to break up with Hacksaw. I'm starting to break up a lot of his short YouTube videos, which are like, three to five minutes, and I'm creating like 45-second clips. So I'm going to start doing that with the John Riley Project content 
just to get that out there and, and get your participation and, and, and support. And hopefully this will be something that you might find interesting. Okay. Let's talk about Mira Mesa. Oh, my God. Mira Mesa. So we we talked a little bit about this about a month or so ago. So uh, the city of San Diego has come up with this grand plan, and they did it for Mira Mesa, and they shortly thereafter did it for University City. And it's just an idea. It's a concept. It's a plan to reimagine, in this case, Mira Mesa. And, you know, we've all driven through Mira Mesa. And Mira Mesa has been this sort of suburban sprawl. They built all those homes out there in the 70s and 80s. And then the Sorrento Valley, Sorrento Mesa area also really grew in the 70s and especially in the 80s. And it's gotten to the point where, man, you if you drive up and down Mira Mesa Boulevard, particularly if you do it around rush hour, holy crap, that's crowded. That's congested. And there's so many stoplights. I mean, that's not pleasant to drive through, particularly during morning and afternoon rush hour. And so the city of San Diego has really wanted to reimagine how Mira Mesa might be set up because they all acknowledge we have a housing crisis. And this housing crisis means we don't have enough housing units. We need to build more so housing can become more affordable. We need to build more because our economy is growing. We have a lot of new, you know, high-tech businesses, biotech, information technology, plus all of our existing military tourism business, all kinds of other business categories. San Diego is growing. San Diego has a credibly low unemployment rate, but a lot of really good high-paying jobs have come to San Diego and are coming here. Apple just bought a huge plant up in Rancho Bernardo. Amazon has a big presence here. I mean, there's a lot going on. But a lot of these high-tech workers, they come here and they can't find a place to live because there's so little housing. And if you can find housing, oh, my God, it's insane. I mean, what's the median price for a house in San Diego County? It's like about 800 grand. And sure, the numbers have come down a little bit, but it's not like it's only 300,000. It's It's a lot. And everyone's trying to come up with all these different ways to do affordable housing and have taxpayers subsidize it or making the developers pay extra for their development, which can be used to create affordable housing with their in-lieu fees. Or maybe developers need to partition off 10% of their construction and make that affordable. But does that really solve the problem? Not really. I mean, in the end, they need to build way more supply. So supply can meet demand and then prices can dampen and in many cases lower. That makes sense. And the city of San Diego is figuring that out because the city of San Diego is becoming more urban. And so the idea for Mira Mesa is they were going to like double the population there. But you can't do that with single family homes and the sprawl. So they're talking about building a lot more high density housing, a lot more high rise apartment buildings. And we're already seeing a lot of that going in at Mira Mesa Boulevard and the 15. I mean, they over the last three or four years, they've built a lot there. And I drive by right now, and they're building even more at Mira Mesa Boulevard and 15. There's a lot of construction going on there. But that's part of the vision. So that Mira Mesa becomes maybe like, you know, in L.A., when you're driving through L.A., you go through Century City, and all of a sudden, boom, there's a lot of high-rises. I think we're going to start to see that in University City and Mira Mesa. That's kind of the plan for this. 
But now climate change activists are saying, no, we don't like this plan. And there's been a lawsuit that's been filed. I kind of want to just run through some of the highlights on this because I think this is interesting. So climate advocates said the plan approved by the city council in January for Mira Mesa fails to include a meaningful attempt to shift commuters out of their cars and into public trans- transit like buses and trolley lines. Oh, this is kind of like the previous um, topic about Sandak. So these climate change activists have had enough of the cars. We don't want more cars. That's the message of climate advocates to city officials regarding a community plan for one of the city's fastest growing suburban job centers, Mira Mesa. Some of the region's highest profile climate advocates say San Diego shouldn't allow Mira Mesa to continue growing without addressing the huge number of greenhouse gas producing car commutes that it draws. And by the way, I'm reading from an article in the Voice of San Diego, and I'll include a link in the show notes. So this this organization, it calls itself the Coastal Environmental Rights Foundation, C-E-R-F, I guess, SURF. They're suing over an update to the Mira Mesa community plan. The plans are, they say, the plans are supposed to be in line with Mayor Todd Gloria's renewed commitments to slashing planet warming gases known as the Climate Action Plan approved in the fall of 2022. But Mira Mesa right now draws a huge number of daily car commutes to its technology hubs, which is true. Absolutely true. Um, And it's this commuting pattern continues in Mira Mesa and other job-heavy suburban areas in San Diego County The Climate Action Plan of 2035 that targets a 50% non-automobile commute will be unattainable even if all auto trips are eliminated in downtown San Diego and other core planning areas, according to this lawsuit. So they're saying, hey, this plan you guys cooked up, it's not going to meet our climate needs. So now it makes you wonder, okay, a lot of times... I mean, there are people that are legitimately concerned with climate. I get that. And they really want to aggressively try to have a zero carbon footprint or to reduce your carbon footprint. And, you know, good on them. We all would like a cleaner world. But there's a lot of other people that just generally speaking resist change. They don't want Mira Mesa to double in size. I mean, we're going through that in here in my hometown of Poway with all this development. People don't like change. So sometimes I often wonder if people are sort of using climate as an excuse to prevent change. You know, it's sort of a way to deflect it. They're going to say, well, you know, it's not me. It's not my selfish need to keep development out, to keep keep those other people out of my community that I've lived in for 30 years. It's, you know, my heart goes to climate (laughs) and We want to protect the earth, Mother Earth. And they use that as sort of the convenient excuse to block it. I think there's a certain percentage of people that fall into that category. Some of them very consciously and others subconsciously. I think that's very true. So this lawsuit goes on and on talking about this. And 
it was remarkable. In fact, Chris Kate, the former city council person for Mira Mesa, he had a tweet that I thought was amazing. I mean, he was exasperated by all this. And he included the link to this lawsuit. And he said, and this was yesterday, February 21st. He said, you know what? Screw it. Let's just not build anything anymore. What housing crisis? <laughs> so that was from Chris Kate. You know, he, and he's frustrated, right? Because he was on the city council. He was the representative of Amira Mesa. He's trying to resolve the housing crisis. But now the climate change people are getting in the way. And so you've got this cluster of people banging into each other, all these different conflicting political agendas. And meanwhile, what does it do? It just prevents anything from happening. And as long as everything is stalled, then the housing crisis just gets worse. Housing gets more expensive. You get more homeless people. You get people that are getting their budgets stretched more and more thin. You get companies that are having trouble recruiting employees because they can't afford to live here or afford a place that's near their place of work. And then meanwhile, you are also getting in the way of any climate um, you know, change opportunities. And so people are still then commuting with their gas-powered cars in and out of Mira Mesa. And then we're, we're in grudge mode and everyone's kind of in a game of chicken staring down the guy next to him. But the comments in this article in The Voice of San Diego – were really, really good. And, and I want to share a few of them because I, I thought this was incredible because <laughs> probably because I agree with them. But this is one comment from a gentleman named Barry Getzel. And he left this yesterday, February 21st. And he said, all potential climate action strategies are hindered by local politics. The majority of the households in Mira Mesa want to commute by car. So no city councilman or the mayor wants to buck that by a restrictive community plan. Similarly, Sandag, through its regional transportation plan, wants to emphasize public transit over automobiles. But the suburban members of its board are fighting against that tooth and nail. You know, and he's making reference to the Sandag representatives from my hometown of Poway and other cities, I think like El Cajon and Vista, where they were upset with Sandag's plan. And they also had a lot less power because the votes in San Diego get more power because there's more population. And they were objecting to it. And it's true because a lot of the people that live in Vista, that live in Poway, that live in El Cajon, they're more concerned about widening the 76 and widening the 67 than they are about extending the trolley line from Mission Valley up to UTC. So, of course, they'd be upset about this. So, Barry Goetzel concludes, and he says, Consequently, we have little chance of achieving our climate action goals by 2035. I think he's right. Because it all gets so politicized. But here is a really, really good quote, and this was from a woman named Christine Smith. She also left this yesterday. In the Voice of San Diego, uh, Voice of San Diego article in the comment section. Like I said, I'll include the show note. And Christine Smith said, "We will never meet climate action goals by social engineering, such as commuting by bike, eat vegan, don't fly, or by zoning. You know, density, eliminating parking, eliminating car lanes and streets, etc." She says. Unless, of course, you zone in such a way that an area becomes so undesirable that to live there, um, you know, would just become impossible and people move away. 
She says our only way out of this climate mess is through actual technical engineering and science. Here we go. This is good. We need to incentivize renewals using point of use solar, wind, and battery storage. For example, every building has solar or wind electrical generation. Encourage transition to electric cars and trucks. Invest in developing technologies to replace concrete and jet fuel. San Diego has many research universities and institutions that can help. And other ideas that haven't even been considered yet. The current Sanday Climate Action Plan was developed back in 2008 before electric vehicles and other technologies were considered viable. We have come a long way in 15 years with technology, much further than with social engineering programs. Let's not destroy paradise because some politicians think we need to do a penance for climate change. Humans are incredibly innovative when we need to be. Let's harness that. Woo. This was good. Because it is ultimately the human mind that is going to overcome a lot of these challenges with climate change. I mean, there's already a lot of really interesting ideas that have been implemented and are being considered where technology can solve the problem rather than having to burden or force people to comply with what, you know, some people demand. They want people to sacrifice for Mother Earth where... I think we can clean up Mother Earth if we look forward rather than backward by using our brains and by using technology. Another comment here from Eric Johnston, he he said 55% or more of the greenhouse natural gases come from automobiles. The move to electric vehicles will have a dramatic effect on GHG and climate goals. And you're correct. We need to be focusing on technology instead of trying to wholesale change communities. Well, you're going to have to wholesale change communities because we need more housing. And that's unavoidable. But do we need to build this massive infrastructure of concrete, you know, platforms and trolleys and tunnels when we already have an existing infrastructure with, with, for cars. But maybe we can use that existing infrastructure much more efficiently, both from a transportation perspective as well as from a climate change perspective by using self-driving EVs with less people on the road because of telecommuting, which we proved was very effective During the COVID crisis, one of the few silver linings, people were working from home and were more productive than they were working in the office. So there's a lot of different ways to go about this that I think could be really helpful. But, I mean, think about like how many billions of dollars it costs to build all this mass transit infrastructure. And then I challenge you this. When you're driving on the freeway. And you see a trolley kind of go over an overpass, or maybe you're at a at a stoplight or a you know a railroad signal and you see the trolley go by, depending on where you are in town. Just do a quick look inside the car and do a quick survey and ask yourself what percentage of that trolley car is full of people. Now, if I go to Tokyo, it's they're friggin' sardines in there. They're jam-packed. But when I look at the, uh, the transit lines here in San Diego, you're lucky if it's 15% full. 
I mean, not counting people going to an Aztec game at Viejas, not counting people going to a ball game at Petco. Okay, during those moments, it's used heavily. And I know the transit line between the border and downtown probably gets a lot. But if you're looking at the trolley line in Santee, take a peek inside those trolley cars. There's barely anyone on there. And then they've surveyed those riders, and about half of them were former bus riders. So it's clear that the culture values the car, partly because it's independent. You can get to where you want to go without having to jump on all these different transportation initiatives and have to transfer three or four times to go from Poway to Pacific Beach. People love their independence. That's part of California culture. Um, And people want to go from their doorstep to their destination without having, yeah, without, to get there as most efficiently. And right now, an automobile will do that faster than anything. So it's remarkable. Uh, We're going to need to transform our communities for housing, but do we need to go to this full utopian vision of Sandag? Some of Sandag's ideas are make sense. I mean, part of their plan is for EVs. Good on them. But part of their plan was also to widen the 76 and the 67. They promised that with the transnet sales tax where everyone was paying a half cent more on the sales tax. And then they abandoned it. And it's like, well, what the hell? I mean, that's like a bait and switch. And there are people like me and Poway and people that live in Vista and San Marcos that drive on that 76 freeway that are always desperate for relief. And then they got a bait and switch. So it's, it's, I don't know. I just, I just sometimes I wonder the visionaries in Sandag, if they're really connected to reality, are they really connected to what the future really is going to be? Or are they in this romantic love affair with rail? I just, I struggle with that. Um, Another person commented, her name's Dante, or her, him, I'm not sure. Dante Garcia said, um, talking about Christine, who was mentioned, the previous commenter who talked a lot about technology being the solution, uh, said, you are correct that technology may help us tremendously if used the right way. The self-driving electric vehicle concepts need to be tested in smaller coastal towns like Imperial Beach, which is only four square miles. It's a good idea. Got a new mayor in Imperial Beach. She's very open-minded, very progressive-minded. That'd be a really good test bed for that. I know they've been testing self-driving EVs in San Francisco with intermittent success, intermittent failures. I've heard criticism of them. And we've, we see it in the news when a self-driving car gets in an accident. But I'll tell you what, I mean, how many accidents happen when humans are driving and we never hear about it in the news? I, I am definitely of the belief that self-driving cars will be more efficient, will be safer, and will be far better for, for both individual and mass transit than the visions of these trains and tunnels and, and trolley platforms. They're going to actually out-innovate the existing gas cars and the infrastructure that they use today. 
They're going to use it more efficiently and use it better. So people in this article, you know, really had some interesting comments. Here's the last one I'll read. And this is from Justina. She also a lot of action on this yesterday, February 21st. She said, and this is good. Has anyone on the city council even tried to take a bus from home to work in San Diego or bike to work? This city is simply not designed for public transportation and never will uh, be as it is far too late to design and plan the required infrastructure. It's a fair point because New York built a lot of this infrastructure in when the city was in its earlier stages. So did Tokyo. But San Diego is like massively grown and they, they didn't build this infrastructure in originally. She goes on to say, the new blue trolley line made an effort, but does not help the 60,000 UC San Diego staff, faculty and students that mostly live in Mira Mesa. So sure, we will keep our cars. Also, no one can afford to buy homes to charge their electric vehicles. Renters do not have the luxury of owning EVs, especially with the San Diego Gas and Electric having the highest electric rates in the country. There's a lot there. So, yeah, I mean, people value their cars. And I I mean, now I'll I'll share uh, one point. This was this happened a long time ago, like in the early 80s. But I was a student at UCSD and I had to get my car repaired. And just through circumstances, we found a place that was an electric uh, automobile repair place that did electrical work, and it was in Lemon Grove. And I remember I was in La Jolla. I was a freshman in college. I didn't even know where Lemon Grove was. And I had to get my car there. And then when I dropped the car off, I had to get back to campus. I figured, oh, I'll just take the bus because I was from the Bay Area, and the bus there was was okay. Um. It took me four hours to get from Lemon Grove back to La Jolla, to UCSD, to my dorm room. And I had to transfer like three or four times and then wait at bus stops for each transfer. It was just insane. Now, mass transit has improved a bit in San Diego County, but not that much. So Justina brings up a good point. Has a city council person ever actually use mass transit, not not for a photo op when the, the blue line goes from Mission Valley up to, to UCSD and, you know, they, they, they clip the ribbon and, and have a photo op and not that, but like every day. And I know there are some people that will bike every day, but you can't really bike to the grocery store. Can't bike to Costco, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, the good news is Costco delivers, which, by the way, I do that and I love it. That's a great service. Um, which also is part of this thing, you know, where people can commute less because there's all these delivery options that can bring things to you, which is wonderful. Um, but have they actually done this? I mean, you know, you, you, like even that line, that UCSD line that goes from Mission Valley up to up to UCSD and then it wraps around and goes over to the UTC area. I mean, imagine if you were a college student at UCSD and you live in Pacific Beach. Maybe you live on Crown Point, or maybe if you're lucky, you live all the way on Mission Boulevard. You know, there's some college students that live out there. Well, how in the hell are you going to get from there to the trolley line, which is probably near Garnett and Highway 5? That's a hell of a walk. You know, now granted, if you're young, no problem. But what if you're older? It's just not realistic. That last mile is a challenge. 
especially now when we got mesas and we've got canyons and people having to go up and down hills. Now, maybe people are thinking, well, yeah, get get out there and get outside and walk and, you know, be active and lose weight. OK, well, that's a fair point. But, you know, it it's just not realistic for a lot of people. For a lot of different reasons. So, uh, you know, has has the city council members, have they actually done it? I don't know. I don't. Uh, my hunch is, is that the vast majority of these government officials and the bureaucrats that work in City Hall are probably driving their car. Now, they might be driving an EV and good on them, but I would guess that a very, very small percentage of them are actually using mass transit. I mean, how far do they have to leap for the, just to get out of their house to get to the transit station? And if they were if they're city officials and they're wearing a business suit... Are they going to want to walk three miles in the rain, three miles in the baking sun and show up to work all sweaty at City Hall? Again, I just don't see it. I don't. Um, But anyway, to me, this is just a fascinating topic. I mean, it really is. What do you think? If you're watching on the live stream, you could type in your thoughts and comments on Facebook or on YouTube. I'll get you involved in the dialogue. Let me know what you think. Okay. We're at an hour and nine minutes and we're cooking. Uh, I told you I was going to go over an hour today and I'm going to take this podcast and I have three separate segments, but I'm going to probably break this up into like nine or 10 even shorter segments, share them on my YouTube channel, maybe on my Facebook page. And then I'm going to start making these vertical, these, you ever do the, do YouTube shorts Boy, I do these when I help out Hacksaw. We uh, take his hour-long podcast. We make the, the four- and five-minute videos on each of his topics on the table. And then I take some of those and I edit them down into vertically-oriented YouTube shorts that are under a minute long. Post those on YouTube. Boy, those do great. I mean, the, the views just skyrocket with those. And I also share those on Hacksaw's Twitter on his Instagram and on his TikTok channels. I'm going to start doing that for John Riley Project too. Um, oh, by the way, if you, if you want to learn more about the podcast, if you want to get involved, maybe you want to be a guest. Maybe you're looking and watching the show on video and you see I've got a microphone next to me. That's for my guests. So if you want to join me here, you have an idea for a guest, or maybe there's a topic that you want me to cover about local San Diego news and local San Diego issues, go to my website, johnreillyproject.com. There are all my old episodes there. I've got blog articles. You can leave a message. You can connect to any of the platforms where I'm active on social media. I'm very active on Twitter to a lesser degree on Facebook. Um, Always responding to YouTube comments. So reach out to me. JohnRileyProject.com is my website. I also have another website, ConnectWithJohnny.com, which just has all the social media platforms. And you can subscribe to our mailing list. Okay. Last topic on the table. Um, I want to talk briefly about Social Security. Um, And this was in the news a few weeks ago, you know, where Republicans, you know, some Republicans have been demanding that Social Security 
be reformed, that Social Security be cut, that Social Security be sunsetted. And there were a few outspoken politicians in Washington, D.C., that Republicans that had said this. In fact, some of them, like Mike Lee, who's a senator from Utah, said he wanted to rip it out by its roots. But do you think that's ever going to really happen? Do you think that the, excuse me, that the Republican Party would actually do that? Really? I, I say no way. Now, some people said, and I was one of them, that said there was no way the Republicans would overturn Roe v. Wade. Well, first of all, I said there's no way Trump would be elected. I never thought in a million years it would happen. I never thought the, the, the Republicans would, would even nominate Trump. But it happened. Then I never thought that the Republicans would overturn Roe versus Wade. I, I, Wade, I assumed that if they overturned Roe v. Wade with the Supreme Court, there would be mass protests in the streets for months on end. And that didn't really happen. People kind of shrugged. There were some protests, but not to the level that I expected. But, you know, the Republicans had something to gain by overturning Roe v. Wade. The Republicans could solidify their evangelical base by overturning Roe v. Wade. But do the Republicans actually have anything to gain by cutting Social Security? I don't really think so. Um, <laughs> got a comment here from Pete Neal on the live stream. I just want to get him involved here since he's here. What did Pete say? He goes, I have... I have rubbed off. <laughs> I just now noticed all your background material on the desk. Now all you have to do is put them in a book. Yeah, I, I need to write a book, Pete. Um, well, let's go back to this. So do you think the Republicans would actually cut it? Now, remember in the State of the Union address, um, Joe Biden brought it up. And he said... Well, you know, the Republicans, they want to cut Social Security. In fact, I've got proposals on my desk that they want to cut Social Security. And immediately, you heard not only the Democrats booing that idea, but most of the Republicans were booing the idea. And saying, no way. Because they know that if, if Social Security was cut, they would lose their next election. It's suicide politically. But then he went on to say, yeah, I've got proposals. I'll show you the proposals. And there are some proposals to eliminate it. There's been proposals to privatize it. Some say George W. Bush wanted to privatize Social Security. That's false. George W. Bush only wanted to privatize a teeny tiny slice of Social Security. George W. Bush's plan was to leave all of the vast withholdings in the trust fund managed by government. He also said moving forward, young people, not old people, only the young people would have the option, not be divorced, to invest a tiny fraction of their Social Security withholdings, not all of them, just a small fraction moving forward into a collection of four or five government approved mutual funds. 
Or they could just keep it in the existing government-run status quo with no changes. So Bush's plan only wanted to privatize a tiny slice of it. And even then, the Republicans voted it down when they had full control of the House and the Senate. There have been suggestions that we needed to raise the retirement age for um, Social Security. Because now I think it, it's you can go to 67 or is it 70 in order to get full benefits? I thought it was 67, but now I've been recently seeing 70 years old. But, you know, they tried to do that in France. And what happened in France, a huge protest. And that was just to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. Here in America, it's already more than that. There's also been proposals to means test it, you know, meaning, meaning that, you know, if you're really rich, you shouldn't get it. That we'd only give it to the people that need it. Well, don't these people talk about a social contract? Is this a social contract? Because if it's a social contract, then you should be get what you're promised to get. If it's a contract, then one side can't violate it unilaterally. Imagine paying into Social Security for 40 years, for four decades, and then because you happen to have some economic success in your life, you get to the end of the road and they go, ah, no, we're not going to give it to you. What the hell? You've been promising me this for four decades and now you're taking it away? That's not really right. So do you think any of this would actually happen? Because... I don't. I mean, there's no upside for the Republicans to cut it. I don't see them ever doing it. And it really, it only comes up from Republicans when they're in the minority, never when they're in the majority. Well, maybe it did when Bush was president. But mostly this is used, in my opinion, as a scare tactic by the Democrats to make people afraid of the Republicans. Now, granted, there's a lot of reasons to be afraid of Republican policies, and I can make a list. But we've been hearing this chicken little routine for decades that the Republicans were going to kill Social Security. They were going to gut Social Security. They were going to they were going to slash Social Security. They were going to throw grandma off a cliff because those lying, cheating thieving, evil Republican bastards don't care about old people. (laughs) That's always been the implication. But can you imagine what would happen? I mean, Republicans depend on old people. Old people vote more Republican than they vote Democrat. You've heard the saying, you know, when, when people are younger, they tend to be more liberal. And when they get older, they tend to be more conservative. There's a lot of people in red states that are very dependent on Social Security. There's no way a Republican politician would do that because they would lose at the ballot box. And after all, isn't that the primary goal of every elected politician is to remain in office so they can remain in power, so they can remain a celebrity, so they can remain in the good graces of lobbyists that are giving them money. Politicians will sell you on the idea that they're there for the people. 
And they are to a degree. But for the most part, they're there for the power. I mean, it's pretty obvious in a lot of these cases. And cutting Social Security does not enhance their power position. It weakens it. Democrats know that. Because Democrats, number one, would never cut it. And number two, they want to frame the Republicans as cutting it because they know it will lose them votes. But Republicans know that, too. But I will say this. The Republicans that are speaking out about it, from a mathematical perspective, they're right. The current trajectory for Social Security is not sustainable. If they do nothing, by the year 2034, Social Security will fail to deliver the full benefits promised because their trust fund will be dry. Which means then that the federal government's going to have to probably have to start kicking in income tax dollars to pay for it or print more money or go more into debt to fund it. But at the same time, the federal government can't even fund their own budget deficit. They're already running million dollar or excuse me, trillion dollar plus deficits. How in the hell does this all add up? Responsible leaders need to address Social Security and fix it. Because if they keep kicking the can down the road, keep trying to blame the other guy, keep doing the three monkey routine by covering their eyes, their ears and their mouth. Then it's going to eventually crash and burn. And we've been again, some people will say we've been hearing this chicken little routine for decades. The Social Security is going to die and it's never died. Well, part of it is because Ronald Reagan increased taxes in the 1980s to fund Social Security. And and, and just as a tangent, George Bush expanded Medicare, George W. Bush. Republicans have a history of expanding entitlements, not cutting them. But Social Security's own board of trustees, you can look up the documents at ssa.gov. Their own board of trustees says that Social Security is going to fail to fund Full promises starting in 2034, and Medicare is even worse shape. So what's going to happen? They're going to continue doing this political theater where Democrats trying to pretend that there's really not a problem. Or if there is a problem, they'll just try to blame the rich. They'll say, well, just lift the cap, you know, because I think Social Security is funded by payroll taxes and only your first $160,000 of income is taxable. Beyond that, it's not. But they did a study like 10 years ago. And if they, if they lifted the payroll tax, it helps, but it still doesn't solve the problem. It's still a broken financial model. And they're thinking, well, why, again, why would the Republicans even propose that? What do they have to gain? Well, they want to just help out the billionaires. But do billionaires, they don't get a paycheck. Billionaires don't pay payroll taxes. Now, corporations match payroll taxes for Social Security, Medicare. But really, in the whole scheme of things, that's kind of not the driving need for tax reform that corporations are driving for. 
I mean, frankly, corporations sort of bundle that in their total cost for the employee in the first place. It's all, you know, when a, when a corporation looks at their cost of hiring someone, they don't just look at the salary. They look at the benefits and the matchable taxable uh, payroll taxes that come along with it. So, again, I just I, – I mean, I, I – find this hard to believe the Republicans would actually do it. But I think what's going to happen is we're going to get down this path of ways and then the shit's going to hit the fan and it'll become a crisis, an emergency, and it'll be all hands on deck to save Social Security and Medicare. And they're going to have to figure out a problem, how to, how to solve the problem. My instinct is they're going to try to find a way to make the rich pay for it. So now you've got other people funding other people's retirements rather than funding your own. This to me makes no sense. It's, it's another way. I mean, Social Security is a Ponzi scheme. The money you pay for Social Security doesn't go into a lockbox. It doesn't go into an account with your name on it. The minute you pay your payroll taxes, it goes into the Social Security fund, and then it gets dished out to old people, many of which are more wealthy than you are. Now, they earned it. <laughs> the older people earned it. They paid into this thing for 40 years. They deserve every nickel of getting their own money back. So I don't blame them. They're just fulfilling the promise that was originally made. The point I'm making is, is that the model doesn't work. It's built on a flawed economic model, a flawed demographic model. I mean... The ratio of workers to retirees when they started Social Security was something like 16 to 1. There were 16 people working to fund one person's retirement. Now that ratio is like 2 to 1 or 3 to 1 or something like that. It's a single digit to 1. So now you don't have enough workers funding the system. Meanwhile, you got older people living later. Good on them. But now the model starts to break down. Now, Hacksaw in his podcast yesterday said, if I were king, well, if I were king, the solution here is you have to continue to fulfill the promises made to people that are retired. That can never end. These people sacrificed. These people had money taken out of their paychecks for 40 years. They were promised this. And now they're collecting it. You can't take away that promise. That would make the federal government a liar. That would violate the so-called social contract. Even if the older people are rich. Still, they earned it. It's their money. People that are in their 50s that are kind of getting close to retirement, I'm, frankly, I'm one of those people, um, you can't really pull the rug under out from uh, uh, under them now. Now, granted, a lot of people have been planning for their retirement thinking that Social Security is a chance it wouldn't be there for them. And that's smart thinking. If you were being a conservative, and I mean conservative, not politically, I mean conservative in terms of planning financials. If you were consider conservative with your plan, you would assume Social Security wasn't there and make sure that you've got enough saved to fund your retirement. But still, 
Social Security still promise. You can't pull the rug out from underneath people. And frankly, there's a lot of people that have virtually nothing saved for retirement. They're depending on Social Security. And I don't know how in the heck they're going to actually survive. Because Social Security, how much does it pay? How, many, how much do you get? I, my understanding is that people are getting like 1000 bucks a month, 1500 maybe 2000 2500 bucks a month. It's not like they're making ten grand a month on Social Security. I mean, the cost of living to live here in San Diego is a hell of a lot more than what Social Security pays out. So I, I, I still think there's a shitstorm coming when a lot of a lot more baby boomers retire, Gen Xers retire with very little saved, and we won't even get to the millennials when they eventually retire. Because that discipline and that leadership hasn't been baked into society like it is in Japan and other societies where people save. Here, people want to just spend it as fast as they earn it. And there are some people that save and that good on them, but it's not as baked into culture as it should be. So while I don't think the Republicans will ever reform Social Security unless their back is pinned against a wall because the, pro- the program is about to self-implode. And frankly, I don't think the Democrats will make a move on it either until they get to that point. The reality is they should. Because if they do nothing, the thing will break. Now, in my opinion, conceptually, We have to get out of this whole model of this Ponzi scheme. We have to get to a model where people are funding their own retirement and they have control over their own retirement. I mean, if you were putting away aside, I mean, Social Security is what, 6.2%. So you count the match, it's 12.4. If you put 12.4% of your income into savings every year, you would be way better off when you retire than you would with Social Security, even if you put it in a very, very conservative savings plan. Even if you took just your own portion, the 6.2, not the employee match, and just save 6.2, you would likely be way ahead of what Social Security is. And you wouldn't be a victim of all this political machinations and song and dance in D.C. We are constantly looking over your shoulder, wondering if they will cut it. You would be in control. And some people will say, well, you know, the, if you have your money in the market, what if the market crashes when you're old? Well, look at the history. The market does go up and down. The market has had a number of, of times when it has gone down, but it always quickly comes back. Look at the long-term horizon. It's a steady upslope. And by the way, you know that the powers that be with the Federal Reserve and the politicians in Washington, D.C. are going to do everything in their power to keep that stock market going because everybody has so much riding on it. But further, when people retire, they don't take all their money out at once. You know, they they take a little bit out at a time. So the principal can still sit there and, and earn more income. So even if the stock market crashed the instant you retired, it's not as if you lost all your money. You're only going to peel out a little bit to, you know, continue to improve your life, to fund your life. And the rest remains and it it grows. 
and it rebuilds like it always has. And on top of it, you would be in control. And frankly, if you didn't want to have your money in the stock market, you didn't have to. You could put it somewhere else that was safer. Like tax-free municipal bonds or even a savings account that's protected by FDIC. I mean, there's a lot of other places you could put your money to feel more secure about it. But if they do nothing... If they do nothing to Social Security, it will implode. Social Security's own board of trustees has said so. This is I'm not just making this up. It's not just some right-wing economist that's saying this. It's I mean, even <laughs> crazy. Trump wants to protect Social Security. Have you noticed that? He's telling Republicans to back down because he knows it costs him votes. He doesn't want to be linked with any of that. In fact, when he campaigned in 2016, he campaigned to protect Social Security. If they do nothing, it will implode. They have to do something. They're either going to have to increase taxes or decrease benefits or some combination of the two. And even if they did that, it still likely will not fix the model because the model is built on a flawed economic idea that does not match the demographic reality of the 21st century. The model as it exists depends on young people paying for old people. The model depends on young people who are often poor to pay for old people that are often wealthy. And as older people live longer and longer, it it just, the math doesn't work. So the system has to be reformed, not just by tinkering with it, with increasing taxes or changing the retirement age or means testing it. Fundamentally, it's built on quicksand. And it has to be reformed. Will it be reformed? I doubt it. I don't think it'll ever happen. I think they'll just tweak it and kick the can down the road. In 20 years, they'll need to tweak it again. And we're just going to see this continuous process because no one in leadership has the cojones to be a leader and solve it. Hopefully, at some point, someone will come along that will show a plan that not only solves it, but actually shows that people will be better off in this new plan. But none of them have the bravery to do that because all they care about is getting elected and reelected. And they want to be very risk-free. They don't want to put themselves in a position where Joe Biden's calling them out, that they're going to throw grandma off a cliff. So, yeah, I, I, the, the summary, the question here on the Chiron on the bottom of the screen says, will the GOP kill Social Security? The answer is no. In capital letters, no. There is no way the Republicans will kill Social Security. They have zero to gain from it. The Republicans had something to gain by nominating Trump because they could see that the Republican base wanted Trump and they could see that they could win. 
frankly, a lot of the evangelicals jumped on board supporting a, you know, a twice uh, divorced man who paid off a porn star. The evangelicals backed Trump because they knew that he would nominate candidates to um, for Supreme Court to re- re- revoke Roe v. Wade. There are other people in the business community that backed Trump because their taxes were going to go down. So even though I didn't think Trump would ever be elected, there were people that had a lot to gain by Trump being elected. When the Republicans made the push to overturn Roe v. Wade, the Republicans had a lot to gain because they would solidify that evangelical base. They would likely get a lot more fundraising from that evangelical base. And because these congressional districts are so gerrymandered, it would just really lock them in and protect, you know, their majorities where they had majorities. But when it comes to Social Security, they have nothing to gain. Absolutely nothing. They would lose votes. They would lose votes from old people that are worried that they're going to lose their Social Security and soon to be retired people. They would lose votes because of this fear mongering that the Democrats would do to frame the Republicans as wanting to kill grandma, make grandma eat dog food, which you hear those lines all the time. They have absolutely nothing to gain. The only way they would have something to gain is if they could flip the conversation and show that their plan is better for the American people and that Social Security will eventually break. And it is already breaking now. But they don't have a vision. They don't have a plan. And they certainly don't have the moral foundation to make that pitch. To do it. They are entirely in defensive mode on this, even though they know that the math won't work. They're too afraid to stand up to do what really needs to be done. And what needs to be done is that a Ponzi scheme always fails. What needs to be done is we need to shift to individual retirement accounts where you control your retirement and to create a culture in America that supports savings, which, by the way, is great for the economy. The more people save, the more money that's invested, the better the economy does overall. But right now, people are conditioned to spend, spend, spend. When Bush gave his tax rebate, he goes, go shopping. It's a flawed way of thinking. And people, there's a lot of people that are going to be in trouble. There's a lot of people that are my age that are in their 50s that have very little save for retirement. And they really don't know what Social Security is going to provide. And they're going to quickly learn that Social Security by itself is not anywhere near enough, especially if they live in California or any other high cost of living location. It just won't add up. It's just impossible. Um, And then they're going to have to be dependent on a lot of other federal programs. For some of these people, ironically, the very same federal programs that that they chastise certain other people for taking. Kind of funny how that works. So um, 
again, I, I think what's happening right now in Washington, D.C. is all theater. Biden is trying to frame the Republicans in bad, as bad guys. And like I said, they, they got plenty of bad policies, but they're trying to play this gamesmanship. They're trying to stroke Biden for framing the Republicans and putting them in a box. So they had to flip. But did they really flip? Because every election cycle, the Republicans rubber stamp the budget and then Social Security funding keeps going up, up, up. The Republicans increased taxes for Social Security a number of decades ago. The Republicans depend on old people for their vote. The Republicans would get crushed in an election if they eliminated Social Security. They've got nothing to gain. So when you hear these comments that the GOP are going to kill Social Security, I encourage you to take it with a grain of salt. And think to yourself what they have to gain. And even if, even if the Republicans in Washington, D.C. voted to overturn Social Security or to cut it or to slash it or to gut it, whatever it is. There's no way the Senate would do that and approve it as well. The Senate, of course, controlled by Democrats. And there's no way a Democratic president would sign off on that. So it's just fear mongering. It's just scaremongering. It's chicken little. Now, I think they should fix it. That they don't have the, the cojones to do it. Okay, I'm starting to repeat myself now. But um, I, I just wanted to share that with you because that has been chirping in the social media zeitgeist now for a number of weeks. And I haven't done a podcast in a while. And I wanted to at least share those thoughts with you. Um, okay, so, and uh, here's a comment here from our good friend, Pete Neal. I want to get him involved in the podcast. And he says, actually... Social Security is going to kill the Republican Party. Okay, now that might happen. The Republican Party is definitely dwindling. Um, the Republican Party is in trouble for a lot of reasons. Now, I'm an independent. Right now, if you look at the trend lines, Republicans and Democrats are losing traction. Republicans at a more aggressive rate and as more and more people become independent. And the Republican base is becoming more closed off, more divisive. And frankly, the Democrats are as divisive as well. But the Republicans, honestly, when, yeah, when, when was the last time they won the popular vote for president? It was, I think, when Bush was reelected in 04. Haley, uh, Nikki Haley was talking about that. Five of the last six presidential elections, the Republicans have lost the popular vote. Yeah, the Republicans are in trouble. In, in my opinion, they need to have a come to Jesus moment. They need to get together and really rethink their agenda. I mean, right now they have no platform. In 2020, they had no platform. Their platform was Trump. That's not a platform. I mean, what principles do you stand for? What ideals? What values? They didn't even approve a, a platform. So could Social Security kill the Republican Party? It might, you know, if they get caught up in on the wrong side of this 
of this theater and they allow themselves to be framed as the bad guys. Or if they actually did cut Social Security without having an alternative plan that was better, then yeah. And frankly, I mean, I would love to see massive disruption to the the duopoly because Republicans and Democrats, you know, basically control government at all levels, yet more people identify that as independents than they do as Republican or Democrat. And yet independents like me have no representation. Yeah, so Pete, you might be right. The Social Security might be what kills the Republican Party. I know that if the Democrats had their way, that would be their message as well. Okay, I think we've covered that one enough. Will the GOP kill Social Security? Answer is no. Okay, so um, let's wrap up this bad boy. We're at an hour and 44 minutes. This is the John Riley Project. This is episode number 310. Going to really try better. Keep doing this on Wednesdays around lunchtime, ideally at 12 o'clock. Going to take this podcast, split it into pieces and share it in some more consumable bite-sized chunks uh, that'll be on my YouTube channel, probably on Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. Uh, so you can share those with friends. So I invite you to share this you know, with your friends, tweet, like, thumbs up if you think it's worth it um, and get this around. I mean, granted, I have my opinions. I have my thoughts. You, and you might know what my thoughts are on a lot of these things, but I'm trying my best to cover local news in San Diego County because I don't think it gets enough attention. And I think there's a lot of things that we can talk about in this podcast to get you involved to make this an interesting conversation. Okay. Oh, here's another comment here that I'm going to get involved. And this is from Julie Randolph. She says, we've been hearing about this for ages, have been advised to save and invest if possible, not to expect Social Security to be enough. Just seems harder for our young ones to pay off student loans buy a house, et cetera, and start that save and invest routine. I'm at the vet with two dogs, can't stay long, but thanks for the discussion. We'll check the recording later. Well, thank you, Julie. Yeah, you're right. You're 100% right. It's hard. Now, it's hard to save for retirement, especially when you're young. I get it. But, you know, the richest man in Babylon talked a lot about this. I mean, really, you should, before you're even thinking about paying off student loans or buying a house, the priority is to save 10% for you long term. That's the one of the main lessons of the richest man in Babylon, which is a fabulous personal finance book that's all written in these parables of ancient Mesopotamia. Um, but yeah, it's hella hard to save for a house. My daughter complains about that with me all the time. She always says, oh, you Gen Xers and baby boomers, you're, you're the lucky generation. You were able to buy when houses were cheap. Well, yeah, we did. But still, it was hard to save then for a house. Now it's harder. But part of the reason the housing's so damn expensive is because they don't build enough. So there's not enough supply to meet the demand and house, housing prices go up. And there's all sorts of rules and regulations that make housing expensive to build that cause the prices to go up. But yeah, it's hard to save for a house. It's hard to come up with, you know, if the, the median home price is 800000 
and you got to save at least 10%? Holy crap, 80 grand. How long does it take you to save $80,000? How long does it take you to save $80,000 when you're 25 years old? I mean, that's like climbing Mount Everest. It's hard. Now, granted, you can get into loans for less than 10%, but yeah, it's hard. And then um, student loans, oh my God. Yeah, that's hard too. But again, I think part of the reason is, is that they make education so expensive that people have to take out student loans. And a lot of people are taking out student loans to fund a college education that's really not going to take them into a career that'll make it viable to pay off the student loan. They go into it without a real plan. College is expensive. It's too expensive. But again, I think there are ways to manage that. I think the, the student loan crisis is just a symptom of the problem. The problem being college being so expensive in the first place. Number two, people's strategy when it comes to college and finding the most cost-effective way to do it. And then number three, this whole kind of revolution that's going on in society about, well, maybe we can get education and skill development, but in a way that's different than the traditional college model. And, and depending on what you're doing for a career, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, rather than going and getting a four-year or sadly a five-year, I was a five-year guy, uh, to get a five-year bachelor's program, which takes a lot of money and costs money. You, you can go and develop skills in a particular niche category, like, say, for example, software development. You don't need a four-year degree. And now, fortunately, hiring organizations, businesses aren't demanding the college degree. They just want people with really good skills. So, but yeah, Jen, Julie, you're right. When you add it all up, it's hell for a young person to save for retirement, save for paying off their loans, save to buy a house, save to buy a car. It's difficult. And live in San Diego, America's finest city. Not easy. Not easy. In my opinion, the people in charge make the, the system more difficult and challenging than it needs to be. I think we're operating with a lot of old ideas, old models like Social Security that are not adapting to the new reality. And a lot of it requires major change, in some cases, major paradigm shifts that people just are not comfortable with. That's why there's resistance to building more housing. That's why there's resistance to mass transit. That's why there's just resistance in general. People don't want change. They just want to sit there and go, close their, their arms, cross their arms and say, nope, I don't want change. It's like one of those Jeff Durham puppets, the one that looks like Joe Biden. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. But I, I think we can talk these things out. That's part of the reason for this podcast. We can talk about these issues. And, and I like to make this podcast a community forum that's open. I've got another microphone here. I invite a guest to join me. We can talk these things through. We can talk this through with people like Julie Randolph and Pete Neald and SD Scuba Mike that have chimed in on the community forum in the live chat. That's all good, too. We can talk these things through. Um, and I always love those conversations. I've had a lot of political candidates that run for mayor of Poway, city council, run for school board, run for Congress, like Fernando Garcia we talked about earlier today. They've joined me here in the podcast, so you've had wonderful conversations. I invite more of that. Okay, I'm going to conclude now. Uh, 
episode 310 of the John Riley Project. If you want to learn more, go to my website, johnreillyproject.com. If you want to check out my other podcasts, I co-host with Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. We cover sports um, and that we live stream every Thursday at three and most Mondays at three. Um, You can check that out. Just look up Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, John Riley Project, look it up wherever you get your podcasts because we're on YouTube, Facebook. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora. We're on all the platforms as well. So check those out. Okay, friends, thanks for joining me. Have a great day. Stay dry, stay warm, and we'll be back at you. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor, subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog or get more information please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.